Welcome to Sunday Sermons from the Williamsburg Community Chapel, brought to you by the Chapel Podcast Network. Let's grab our Bibles and open up to the book of Matthew, chapter 2, verses 1 through 15. And I'll read the first two verses for us now as we prepare to hear from Hunter Rue as he helps us continue in our Advent series titled Restored Kingdom. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, Behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and have come to worship him. We indeed have had a wonderful weekend, and the fun will only continue later today and this evening. And I highly enjoy this season and definitely agree with Andy Williams that it is the most wonderful time of the year because of the great memories and the great associations that I personally have with the Christmas and the Advent season. And one of those great associations are the stories that we receive from God's Word about this season. And one of those that has become well-beloved in my heart and many of yours as well is this story of these wise men from the East from Matthew chapter 2. Um, This is the fourth uh, sermon in our series of the Restored Kingdom, which has been our Advent series, and this week's title is Out of Egypt I've Called My Son, from Matthew chapter 2. So with all of that preamble, I suppose it's ironic that I will admit to you that this is probably not appropriately termed a Christmas story, but an epiphany story, and we'll talk about that in just a little bit. So, just as you look at this text, it is so rich with meaning that connects to the rest of the story of Scripture and so deep in who it proclaims Jesus to be. My great encouragement to anyone and everyone is that if you just pick up the Bible, you will see the beauty of Jesus Christ in every page, particularly in this passage today from Matthew chapter 2. We need to understand that the purpose why Matthew even wrote this story about Jesus' life, death, and resurrection in his gospel is to proclaim that Jesus is the promised Messiah, or the Anointed One, who is the fulfillment of the Old Testament. He is the descendant of King David, who was to rule over God's kingdom. And our prior sermons in this series have touched upon that, from the genealogies to last week when Dale preached on Jesus being Emmanuel, God with us. And the main idea for our message today from Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 15, is that Jesus Christ is the rightful king who rules over the restored kingdom. That is, the restored kingdom of God. And as we think about the structure for the verses that Christine has read, they go as follows. First, the king is promised. Secondly, the king is praised. And thirdly, the king is protected. So let's open up and look at chapter 2, verses 1 and following. And the king is promised. Again, understanding that Jesus is the great fulfillment and great descendant of King David that has been promised from the Old Testament scriptures. We read in verse 1, Now after this, Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king. Behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and have come to worship him. Uh, Just to get an idea of the characters in the story, and I also want you to pay very close attention to how the different characters in this story respond to this announcement of Jesus as the king. And ask yourself, who do I identify with in this story? 
But our first character is Herod, King Herod, also known as Herod the Great. What you have to understand about this man is that he was not purely Jewish. He was appointed by the Roman Senate to be the king of Judea, and he reigned from 37 to 4 BC until his death. And that means that he was a political appointment who had gained his position through savviness and coercion and manipulation. And so he was a very insecure king leading these people of of Judea who were Jews because he knew that they knew that he was not their rightful king. They were waiting for the Messiah, but they had to endure the reign of this man who, because of his insecurities, oftentimes acted out in cruel and unusual ways to maintain his power. But at the same time, on the other side, he tried to be a good and benevolent king to the Jews to maintain their favor. And so he actually contributed significantly to the building up of the Jewish temple in the day. But nevertheless, the Jews never saw him as their true king, as the rightful king. They saw him simply as a politically appointed king who was a usurper, who was simply in for the power and the influence that he could gain from the position. Now contrast that to this group of men known as the Magi, or the wise men. The word Magi, which is the actual word used in the the Greek text of the New Testament, is a Persian word which means experts regarding the stars. So to some level, we, we know that these wise men were astrologers, maybe even priests from the east, which could be the land of Babylon, which is modern day Iraq, maybe from other parts of what was known as Arabia. And over the centuries, they had become well-known for interpreting dreams. And some people think that this tradition goes all the way back to the Old Testament prophet Daniel, who was known for interpreting dreams in the kingdom of Babylon, and that maybe somehow Daniel's influence had trickled down to a school of dream interpreters or priests. Some have likened this group of men to be very, very politically powerful, by the way, They were not just simply college professors who happened to have a good education. They were actually relied upon by kingdoms and nations and sought out because of their wisdom when considering whether or not to go to war or what to do in large governing affairs. So some have equated these wise men to being ambassadors to the United Nations, those who had great power, great military, and great influence. And yet, here's where we get a little bit of a breakdown of the Christmas story as we traditionally understand it. Because if we take a deeper look at this text, we have to recognize that the text clearly indicates that these wise men did not show up on the night that Jesus was born with the shepherds and with the angels all in one place. And when I realized this for the first time, it almost dismantled my whole understanding of what the Christmas story was all about. And we we actually see this in the text very clearly because we have to understand that they came from the east. They came from far away and they left and they got ready for their journey when they saw this star in the sky. So some scholars believe that they may have traveled a distance of almost 900 miles from Babylon in the east just to show up at Jerusalem and eventually end up in Bethlehem. This would have taken them at least three or four months at a minimum. Some, post, uh, some believe that this may have actually been a year or even two years after Jesus was born. And I know that this is shattering some paradigms of that beautiful scene in the Christmas story. John Duncan is crying over there. 
because you imagine that the shepherds show up and the angels are singing glory to God in the highest and then the wise men appear from out of nowhere with the gifts and it, it just didn't happen that way. They came sometime later. But be encouraged. We do want to celebrate and recognize the historical fact that they came, but it's probably more appropriate to consider this as part of the season of Epiphany, which starts next year on January the 6th, in just a few weeks, than part of Christmas. Again, if you have your manger scenes set up with everyone, it's okay. But as one friend advised us, it's okay to have the manger scene on your mantle, but maybe the wise men are on an end table off to the side because they're still on the way. We don't have evidence that they were actually kings. We don't actually know for sure that there were three. I know I'm really making people uncomfortable here. Yes, they brought three gifts, and that's where the tradition had developed, that there were three of them. But what we do know for a fact from this great story from history that Matthew wants to show us is that non-Jewish men of great influence have come from a great distance to find and worship the Jewish Messiah, the child, Jesus Christ. This doesn't make sense until we realize just how special this young child really is. Now notice that the wise men did not show up and ask, where is this child who will one day become the king of the Jews? They ask what? Where is he who has been born the king of the Jews? And what this shows is a great contrast even to Herod's kingship, which he got through political manipulation and coercion, and that of Jesus because Jesus alone is the rightful king. He always has been and he always will be because he alone is the promised king who indeed rules the restored kingdom. Unlike Herod, who manipulated his way into his role. Now interestingly, as we think about the star, because they mentioned the star that rose, literally the star in the east, um, because they were interpreters of dreams and experts in the stars, God somehow used some astrological phenomenon to draw these men from 900 miles away to Jerusalem and then to Bethlehem. And many theories exist about what this star was. Some have gone to great lengths to determine the constellations and the positions of planets at this point in history and at this season. And that may very well be the case if God decided to do it that way. I just hold that this was somehow God's supernatural manifestation of his glory in the sky that he used to lead these men, much like he led the manifestation of himself to the Israelites through the wilderness through a pillar of cloud and a pillar of fire. But something in the sky, God showed these men that they must travel a long distance to find the one who's been born the king of the Jews. And what we also find is that just their recognition of him as king, because they advised lots of kings in their careers as wise men, but now they were going to meet the truest and best king, which shows that God's kingdom expansion was more than just the Jewish people. But it was designed and always has been designed to include all nations and all people. And I'm wondering if God led the wise men through this star just far enough that they got to Jerusalem. And they began to wonder, where do we go next? Let's go to the palace. Let's talk to this current king because this newborn king is probably here somewhere, this child. And I'm wondering if God led them just to Herod, just to ask that question, to communicate to Herod, your time is just about up. I have a true king for my people, and his name is Jesus. 
So Herod does not exactly respond very well to this news of this potential new king. In verse 3 we read, When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled. The word means greatly anxious. And all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and the scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. So this was an emergency gathering of these religious leaders. Things were at DEFCON 2 for Herod because his kingdom and his kingship was under threat. And he wanted to know what the heck is going on. I'm going to call together these religious leaders and find out from them answers to my question. And somehow Herod knew that there was this expectation of the Christ, the anointed one, this great descendant of David who would serve as king and rule on the throne on God's behalf. And so he calls together these men, these religious leaders, and what's amazing is how easily they answer this very profound question about where he is to be born. Because Herod's doing his research for for evil purposes here. And they answer simply in verse 5, in Bethlehem of Judea. For so it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, and the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people. So uh, these religious leaders um, show some wonderful biblical knowledge. But they show that their hearts were far from what that knowledge and that truth was attempting to point them towards. And what's fascinating to me is that their answer of Bethlehem being the birthplace of the Messiah is just five miles away from where they are in Jerusalem. Five miles is the same distance from where you are right now to the Welcome Center in Colonial Williamsburg. That is how close they were to the birth and the location of the king, the king of the Jews. But they just didn't know it. They saw what the scripture was telling them, but they did not observe closely. Just five miles away. And maybe we can't blame them. Because Bethlehem itself at this time was a village of maybe about 300 people. 300 people. So when we sing that song, O Little Town of Bethlehem, that is very appropriate for this place. It was unimpressive, and because of that, it had grown to be a place that they had been unsuspecting to them of the birth of the Messiah, even though they knew that the Scriptures said it. So the Messiah was hiding in plain sight right under their nose, but they missed it because they put forth an an indifference towards the promised king. They just were indifferent. And you contrast that to the wise men who came from 900 miles to worship a king who was not even their own. What we find from this text is fascinating in the description of this ruler, this Messiah, who is Jesus. That he would be a shepherd to the people of Israel. We know that these same words were used of King David when he was anointed king of all the nation of Israel to be a shepherd of God's people, of that kingdom. And so we see the connections between Jesus and David are growing stronger and stronger even in this second chapter of Matthew. And we know that Jesus, of course, would be a great shepherd, not just to his people, but to all who would believe in him because he's the good shepherd who's laid his life down for the sheep. So the king is promised, and this king is Jesus. The king is also praised. As we turn to verses 7 through 12, we read on, When then Herod summoned the wise men secretly, which is different than the religious leaders, he wanted to have a private conversation, and he ascertained from them at what time the star had appeared. 
What Herod was ultimately trying to discover is how long ago did you see this star? That will tell me how old this child is. And then sadly and cruelly, later in the chapter, past our text, we find out that Herod would carry out an order to slaughter all male children two years and under. Which is another reason why scholars believe that this may have happened up to two years after Jesus was born. Verse 8, And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Hear my my tone here, uh, Go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word, that I too may come and worship him. That is not Herod's intent. He's speaking one thing out of his mouth, but he has hostility in his heart. He did not want to worship this child. He wanted to war against this child and take his life. Nevertheless, in verse 9, after listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And I would think that we would rejoice in the same way. Because uh, here they were at this moment, their long journey of months or maybe even years, of hundreds and hundreds of miles, they had finally arrived at this place. And they were excited to meet this great king, this child. And their response is remarkable. As they go in, in verse 11, and going into the house, and note, by the way, it's a house, it's not a stable. They saw the child with Mary, his mother, And they fell down, and they worshipped him. And they opened their treasures, and they offered him gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. They responded to this great moment with worship and with generosity towards this king. I find it remarkable that the first people to worship the Jewish Messiah in Matthew's gospel are non-Jewish dignitaries from 900 miles away. They worshipped him. The word worship literally means to throw oneself down on the ground with your face to the ground in worship and reverence for the one you are before. And they gave significant gifts to this King Jesus, this young child. By the way, this is where we adopt the tradition of giving gifts during this Christmas season, really from the example of the wise men, even though they came at Epiphany later, and that's okay. So if you like giving and receiving gifts at Christmas, you can thank the wise men. If you're frustrated by the process every year of buying people gifts, you can blame the wise men. Nevertheless, they gave gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Gold being a rich and priceless metal appropriate for a king. Frankincense and myrrh were aromatic compounds made from shrubs and the sap of trees that were used in perfumes. And in the case of myrrh, used for the anointing and the preparation of bodies for burial. So we see really from the beginning of Matthew's gospel, he is making a connection to events at the beginning and towards the beginning of Jesus' earthly life and the end of Jesus' earthly life when he would be buried and his own body would be prepared for burial. Jesus was also offered myrrh on the cross, which he rejected at that time. So Matthew is drawing this clear connection between the beginning and the end of his Gospels with Jesus at the center. Interestingly, in verse 12, the wise men are warned in a dream not to return to Herod, and they departed to their own country by another way. This now leads to the third portion of our text, which is that the king is protected. The king is protected. God wanted to make sure that his king, his son, was protected from harm at this time, because he had greater plans for him in the future. 
We read in verse 13, And when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother, and flee to Egypt, and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child. As the, the banner has just gone down, maybe that reminds us of, of Joseph and Mary and, and Jesus fleeing to Egypt in haste, because that kind of stuff can happen. So rise and take your child, flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. Which is the same word that was used of the religious leaders in their desire to destroy Jesus throughout his ministry. And so Joseph rose, in verse 14, took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son uh, this was a don't waste any time. Don't even uh, just pack what you can, Joseph. Get up and flee. When he, he writes flee, that's a very immediate command of go. And they go. They go by night. And some might wonder, why Egypt? Why was this place important for them to flee to? Well, at least on the surface, it, Egypt was part of the Roman Empire. It was another province about... 75 miles away to get to the very beginning of the Egyptian province, but the first village where they would have been able to settle was twice that distance. They would have had to have gone another 75 miles into the heart of Egypt just to have a place to stay. And um, Herod could not touch Jesus here. Herod's jurisdiction was only within the boundaries of the kingdom of Judea. And so this was a place for God to tell Joseph to take the king to protect him until the time was right for him to return. Indeed, Herod would die, and Joseph and Mary and Jesus would return. But we want to pay attention to a detail here in this last phrase of our passage, because the first, first, the first 15 verses really demonstrate that Jesus is the promised king, and he's praised, and he's protected. But it's the final quotation in this passage, which gives us a great clue that God had a greater plan to restore his kingdom through his son, Jesus Christ. And that is the quotation from the Old Testament, out of Egypt I've called my son. This is a quotation from the prophet Hosea, chapter 11, verse 1. And when Hosea is recording this event, he's not actually making a prediction about anything that's supposed to happen in the future, per se. He is simply recording what has happened in the past, and what God did with his son, the nation of Israel, and brought them out of the country of Egypt, where they were enslaved for almost 400 years to cruel masters known as pharaohs. And so God, in his great promise and his great covenant faithfulness, took his son, the nation of Israel, and those people, through his servant Moses, out of the land of slavery, and brought them eventually through the wilderness into the land of freedom, into the promised land. And he was uh, telling them that he is their God and that his covenants were faithful and sure and he would rule them as king. So when Matthew here quotes from Hosea chapter 11 verse 1, out of Egypt I have called my son, he's actually demonstrating a principle that New Testament writers would show, which is that he was likening an event in the present to something that had happened in the nation of Israel in the past. And what he was showing is that Jesus Christ was a greater fulfillment and completion of what had happened to the nation of Israel in the past. 
he was showing that Jesus would accomplish what Israel would never be able to accomplish, which was to provide redemption and salvation to the world. In other words, he would fully restore God's kingdom. As the Son of God brought out of Egypt a second Moses leading God's people through a second exodus to a second and even greater freedom. Not because they were enslaved not to a Pharaoh as a cruel master, but enslaved to sin as the cruelest master of all. Which, by the way, is the kingdom that you and I are born into naturally when we come into this world. Because we are by nature and by practice sinners from birth. And we have a good king who's come out of Egypt who has brought us from that kingdom when we trust in him to his new kingdom to be our new king and has promised us the greatest freedom and forgiveness and peace that we would ever know. We find that even when Jesus was dying on the cross, that he was still the rightful king, the promised king, the victorious king, because three days later he was raised from the dead in the glorious resurrection showing that God's kingdom cannot be stopped because his king is promised and victorious. So, if we've learned that Jesus Christ is the rightful king who rules over the restored kingdom of God, the question is, how do you and I respond to this announcement that Jesus is the king? Remember, I said we need to keep an eye on the different responses found throughout our passage. Maybe we respond with fear and hostility like Herod. Maybe we resist and reject the idea and the truth that Jesus is the king. Because after all, if Jesus is the rightful king ruling over the restored kingdom of God, that means that his authority expands over all creation, including your life and mine. And maybe like Herod, we have preferences and personal priorities that we hold on to rather than surrendering them to the truth and reality of Jesus as the king in his sovereignty. If that describes your response to the announcement of King Jesus today, God's invitation to you is simple. Trust me, believe in me, and surrender to me. And know the full beauty of my grace and truth. And experience eternal and abundant life in my restored kingdom I've given my son for you. You can trust me. I am good. Maybe our response is like the indifference of the religious leaders. They were so geographically close, five miles away, but spiritually far from the truth of Jesus as the king. They had every indication that he would be born close to them. But their knowledge was worthless because they ultimately did not take and act upon that knowledge. In some ways, I wonder, at times, is that like me, that I can become indifferent and too familiar with the story of Christmas or the story of Jesus in general? Maybe I become too comfortable. Maybe I sometimes think like you do, Jesus, Messiah, Savior, yada, yada, yeah. I don't think that we can yada, yada, Jesus the King. The fact is, God has come near he is in our midst through the person of His Son, Jesus Christ, the rightful and promised King. And if we have become indifferent to Him and His rule in our lives, God's invitation to us is simple as well. Return to me. Look once again with me with fresh eyes by my grace and know that I have sent Emmanuel 
to dwell with you each and every day. Well, the final response is the worship and reverence of the wise men. Maybe we respond like that to the announcement of Jesus as king. And the truth is, that is the only appropriate response when we recognize exactly who he is and exactly what he has accomplished as the rightful king over the restored kingdom. We think about how they took this journey for hundreds of miles at great cost. It took a lot of time. Many times, I'm sure the journey got dangerous and difficult, and they were very tempted to turn around and go back to Babylon or to the east. But they remained dedicated because they knew that something or someone greater was waiting. And when they arrive, they respond in worship and generosity towards this king. The truth is, they had very little knowledge about what was going to await them, but they were willing to go great distances just to worship the king. And that's quite an example for us. I think of how many times it's easy for us to say, well, I'm not sure if I'm going to go and collectively worship the king today. And yet, I hope my life is more like the wise men. Because God desires for us to become a more surrendered people, to surrender to the true king, that is Jesus Christ, And he leads us to experience the power of his restored kingdom in our lives as we await the perfect arrival of his restored kingdom in the future when he comes to reign in righteousness, justice, and peace perfectly. Jesus Christ is the rightful king who rules over the restored kingdom. And Advent reminds us that God's kingdom is on the move because God's king has been and continues to be on the move. As the Son of God, Jesus Christ came out of Egypt to deliver us and to offer us freedom, forgiveness of sin, and citizenship in His eternal, restored kingdom by His grace. And that is the true gift of Christmas, even if we learn about it from an epiphany story. Would you surrender to the King Jesus Christ? Would you respond and would I respond with worship and with joy as the wise men did? When we respond in this way, we experience the beauty and the benevolence of the reign of King Jesus in our lives, who's come to shepherd his people, that is you and me, in his lasting kingdom that will have no end. Thank you for joining us today. Here at the Williamsburg Community Chapel, we are all about making disciples of Jesus Christ. So wherever you are on your spiritual journey, we are excited to help you connect to Christ and His community. Have a blessed day.